the comments from the, the industry stakeholders kind of laid out just the enormity of this task. You have 10 years, 1,400 chemical compounds, and it's not just the large companies of the world that are going to be subject to this. Welcome to the Future of Risk podcast from Zurich, North America. Hi, I'm Renee Koa. Today we're talking about a risk that is beginning to make headlines and for good reason. We're talking PFAS, a word that's from the plural form of the acronym PFA and which is a lot easier to say than PER and polyfluorinated alkyl substances. The potential and significant health hazards of these chemical compounds make them a risk that businesses need to be aware of. Joining us today to discuss PFAS are Chris Garibrandt, Senior Principal Risk Engineer in charge of liability at Zurich, and Fred Myatt, Technical Underwriter at Zurich. Chris and Fred, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having us. Thanks for having us, Renee. This is, this is exciting. I'm, I'm happy to talk. Well, then, Fred, I'm going to ask you if you would start with a short lecture called PFAS 101. I'm happy to do that. And by the way, you pronounced it perfectly, which in these day and age, when you're talking about chemical names, is not as easy as it seems. Um, so PFAS is really a term for a family of chemical substances. And you know, that family includes uh, PFOA, PFOS. Those are two that are theoretically no longer produced in the U.S., um, you can still get them, but they're no longer manufactured here um, because the, the, these two are ones that are specially known to bioaccumulate. There's, there's probably 4,000, more than 4,000 different chemicals in, in this family. And you know, it's kind of an interesting uh, history. Um, they were created back in the 1940s, and then they kind of took off in the 1950s, and we've been using them uh, for these past 70 years, uh, 80 years now. There's a lot of places where we see them. Probably the most common one that you'll find in everybody's home is nonstick pans. But yeah, the, the PTFE, uh, which I won't go into the chemical name of that, but uh, that's you. probably the most common one <laughs> that, that we see out there. But you know, water repellent clothing, firefighting foams. It's used in construction, in adhesives and coatings. We find it in makeup. Um, pesticides, we've been finding some traces of it in. Uh, the packaging for our coffee in the morning or the wrapper around our hamburger for lunch. Um, it, it, it's all, at one point or another, really been touched by PFAS. And so it really is an important topic for us to discuss. You know, I'm aware of the importance of all of those different products, particularly the pans, the firefighting foam. And of course, I have a very personal relationship with makeup. Don't use smudge-proof lipstick. Um, that's probably the largest exposure that women have um, at the moment. Oh, wow. Chris, can you talk about PFAS and what's made them so indispensable around the world for all of these different products? Sure. Well, companies use PFAS because it provides certain characteristics that are useful 
uh, in their applications. And some of the formulations that come out of it are uh, water resistant and oil resistant. That's just part of what we see. We know that there is some super absorbency. Uh, when we look at AFFF, which is the film uh, firefighting foam that we have seen in uh, petrochemical applications, it, it works. That's why it's used. It increases durability of some products, and so you might see it in plastic bottles. You'll see uh, the decomposition very resistive to uh, breaking down. Fred, why don't you use your comment there on you know, the first molecule of uh, PFAS? It's kind of a scary thought, but um, I was in a conversation the other day, and the person I was talking to reminded me that every molecule of PFAS that's ever been created still exists. Um, it is that durable and that strong. That carbon-fluorine bond is shockingly strong. That's what makes it attractive to many applications uh, from its UV-resistant friction reduction, you know, that we see from that. So it, it really is a very durable <laughs> product. That's obviously a terrific characteristic. So where do you take it from there, Fred? Yeah, I mean, they, they are, there's a reason that they've been around that long and they've been used so broadly um, across a number of industries. And those are admirable. Um, but the things that make PFAS so good for different applications is also kind of the problem. If we think about uh, PFAS, the, the nickname that you may hear people use is forever chemicals. Um, that person wasn't kidding when they were talking about every molecule still exists. To, to break them down is extremely difficult. They're very chemically stable, um, extremely difficult to break down in the environment. And you know, we really don't have a good feeling for how long it would take them to break down in the environment. Um, you know, part of the problem with, you know, Chris talked about different formulations have different characteristics. And one of the real issues that we've seen has been bioaccumulation. Now, Chris and I are both old enough that we remember the DDT stuff from the 70s and the shells of the bald eagle eggs that were really brittle. And that was all due to DDT. We see it happening with PFAS. And so what happens is it's in the environment. Um, it's picked up by plants, which are eaten by animals or eaten by other animals, which may be eaten by humans, but none of those biological systems are able to break down those molecules. And so they tend to kind of stay in the body and not break down and not really be expelled because your body just isn't prepared to deal with it. The irony of it all is that, you know, the nonstick pans were sold as a way of reducing your saturated fats, okay, because they were nonstick. So you don't have to use as much butter or use as much oil. Margarine versus butter, that Exactly. And it turns out butter is better for you in the long run. But that was an intent to reduce your cholesterol level, but it, it has the effect of increasing your cholesterol. You're right. So can we backtrack just a little bit? Chris, could you elaborate on how PFAS accumulate in our bodies? Sure. So there's multiple pathways for exposure. You have to consider certainly that there is uh, ingestion, so through drinking water or food products. 
You can also have inhalation or absorption through the skin, but most likely it is through water supplies that have been contaminated with this and in the United States, uh, but certainly the entire planet too. So there are possible air emissions. If you remember acid rain where contaminants uh, attach themselves to water molecules in the air, that water travels over a, a period or distance and redeposits in the form of rain into different uh, areas uh, and then leaches back through to the soil to the groundwater. When you ingest it, it goes into your body and never leaves. It can accumulate in different uh, endocrine system, okay? So from that standpoint, uh, because these are endocrine disruptors, it can form cancers through the endocrine glands. We also see, right, because it's a lot of these. Look at Renee's face. (laughs) A lot of them are water soluble, and the human body is like 80% water. So it's not like just straight fluorine that builds up in your bones. It actually kind of is free floating. um, And it's part of the reason that it causes a problem for the liver and kidneys um, is because those try to, you know, clean bad stuff out of your blood. Uh, We know that there are roughly 120,000 U.S. sites that may cause exposure to forever chemicals. That's according to uh, the Guardian reports. Data from the EPA showed that the most affected areas were in Colorado, Oklahoma, California. You know, states that have a huge military presence is really part of the concern. So if I could just add to that, Chris, I mean, no state is immune to this. you know, when, we, when we look at the, the map from the EPA, and they've put out some really good information on that, there isn't a state that can't point at a site and say, hey, we're clean. It, it is everywhere in, in the U.S., and it's not just U.S. We see it across the globe. This is not just a U.S. issue. This is not just uh, North America with Canada or Mexico. It, it really is a global issue. So, Fred, I'm a little reluctant to ask this. If it's everywhere in all of these places, how widespread is this when it comes to uh, people? We don't want to fear monger, right? I mean, that's not the point here. But, you know, if we're just talking about detection, is it in our drinking water? The answer is that uh, most of the water supply in the U.S. and I believe from what I read in Canada as well, is affected by PFAS. There's estimates that uh, 98% of the people in North America have PFAS in their blood. Um, And so this is something that is affecting people all day, every day. um, When you're you're filling your glass from that tap, um, there's PFAS um, that, that is likely in that water. Now, we have to be careful about concentrations and all of that. But, um, you know, it is something that, you know, is a function of its longevity, our inability to break it down, as well as, you know, having used it for more than 80 years. It's out there and we need to pay attention to those. In making that connection that if PFAS can linger in the environment for thousands of years, what are the ramifications of it then? I take it it can't break down in our bodies either. And I wondered if you could talk about the health risks and if the risks depend on the specific PFAS in our systems. It's an 
interesting thing, and, and it, it continues to be studied, right, Renee? There isn't something we could point to and go, hey, there it is. This isn't uh, mesothelioma with asbestos, right? We can't just say this is the single cause. But we do see that there are a couple of things that, that come about, um, or at least that have been talked about in the scientific literature. And one that is probably near and dear to everybody at this point in time in a pandemic is that we have seen incidents of the uh, vaccines aren't as um, effective in children who have PFAS in their bloodstream. We also see that there's certainly issues with changes in liver enzymes in adults. We're seeing low infant birth weights attributable to this. Um, there's some increased risk of high blood pressure, some preeclampsia issues with pregnant women. And there are some researchers out there that are really looking hard at increases in the risk of breast, kidney, and some other forms of cancer. Um, and, you know, something that you know, people are probably more aware of is it, it also tends to increase cholesterol levels. So there are a number of issues that we are seeing start to uh, come up in the scientific literature, and we continue to monitor that uh, to see where this is going to lead us. So I want to um, ask Chris, if they've been around since the 1940s, why are we hearing about it now? Well, it, it's interesting, and it ties back to the point of uh, origin or exposure. So the latency period for much of what we see can be upwards of 30 to 40 years. And if you're getting little doses over time, that accumulation doesn't amount to uh, perhaps too much until it hits a, a peak point that starts to cause uh, some physical harm, the diseases that come from that. So we, we then begin to see them uh, cropping up as claims people are getting sick uh, we've known that this has been a problem since the mid-1950s, and each decade research has showed that they're starting to get more and more interested in this. You can see it through the academic journals and so forth. Uh, but starting to see the bans in some states and countries, and, and that's what I mean by uh, seeing that it's having a swell of interest is really what's generating this idea of uh, now the EPA and others are starting to, uh, EPA, FDA, are starting to uh, move forward with, with regulations that they think might be uh, reasonable to contain this. Fred, are there laws to help protect people from P PFAS in the United States? It's kind of a patchwork right now. The EPA is certainly looking at doing something more about this. There is a voluntary standard in place, and that's about 70 parts per trillion, and that's nationwide. Other states have enacted different levels below that, um, as the states are allowed to do. Um, and the EPA is really going in and digging in to see what would be the best uh, path forward on an actual enforceable standard. These 70 parts per trillion, I mean, that's hard to imagine. So let me put it to you like this. So the Niagara Falls, right? Beautiful mm -hmm. falls. Um, there's about 170 million liters per minute that go over the falls in a normal day. That's a lot of water. Um, so 
70 parts per trillion would be a shot of espresso, 30 milliliters of espresso dumped over the falls every two and a half minutes. When you think about it in terms of that, um, that's not very much. One proposal they're talking about is 15 parts per trillion, which would be about an espresso shot every 12 minutes. Um, the other one is seven parts per trillion, which would be an espresso shot about every 25 minutes. And that's, that's really a measure of how um, seriously they're taking the risk posed by PFAS. Fred, that comparison was really helpful. So, Chris, what is the EPA recommending in terms of uh, steps companies can take? If we look back to October 18, 2021, EPA Administrator Michael Regan announced that the agency's PFAS strategic roadmap would be laid out uh, for the whole agency on how they're going to address PFAS. And it really is intended to be very much scientific-based and not politicized. I think that that's Sometimes you see that that's what occurs, but th this is not that case. So they're basing it on the three directives of research, restrictions, and remediation. When we look at research, that's to invest in the research development and innovation to increase understanding of PFAS, much like what we're doing right now, uh, to look at the toxicities, the exposures, human health and ecological effects, and the effective interventions that incorporate the best available science. Again, keeping it science-based, I think, is where we'll see the best approaches to dealing with PFAS. The other is to restrict, okay? So to pursue a comprehensive approach to proactively prevent PFAS from ever entering the air. Looking at it from an engineering standpoint, if you keep the contaminant out, it doesn't get to the point where it can adversely affect human health and the environment. We're in this planet together, and you know we certainly have a duty to act accordingly to protect ourselves and, and others that can't otherwise protect themselves. And then to remediate the third prong in all of this, and it broadens and accelerates the cleanup of PFAS contamination to protect human health and ecological systems. But this is where we're going to see regulatory enforcement as well, which you know in the EPA has been sort of reticent to uh, engage in that, but I think that they're broadening their approach to this. Is there going to be a timeline for companies to comply, Chris? Well, Fred, let me let me tap you for that. I know that they have the roadmap and it has a pretty broad horizon, uh, but businesses that are not already preparing to meet these major new compliance obligation really need to start understanding what they need to do now. Yeah, I completely agree, Chris. You know, the EPA roadmap is a three-year roadmap. And when you look at kind of the history of rulemaking and all of that, that it, it just takes time. We will see this continue to develop over the next couple of years. But I think what Chris is saying is, is really important. It really comes down to irrespective of the laws in place, really, what do I need to do to manage my risk? And as as a company out there, you know, when we start talking to our customers, we really want to hear from them about how they're managing risk. And this is just one more of those risks that we want them to start, you know, identifying, assessing, and then managing. Um, and, you know, the, the rules are going to change. The, the levels are going to change. And, you know, if I'm a business owner, if I'm managing a business, you know, I want to stay on top of this and I want to manage it even before the rules come into place. 
um, just so I know what my exposure is and what I'm doing to, um, as Chris, Chris said, to eliminate that from my process, if that's possible. And I guess I'm a little afraid to ask this next question because it seems very daunting. How do you get rid of PFAS? Yeah, so that's a tough question, Renee. And the EPA is having that studied. They've put out some monies to look at that. I mentioned earlier that the carbon fluorine bond is very, very strong. If we're going to remove this from water, you know, there's pretty much two approaches you can take to that. Um, one would be reverse osmosis, which is putting it through a um, really small filter that cleans stuff out. And I'm being very general in that term, right? Mm -hmm. There's a lot more physics involved with that. Sure. And the other one is we've seen as effective is activated charcoal. And so the nice thing is that you you can eliminate it using those processes. It's difficult and it's expensive. But at the end of the day, the effluent coming out on the other side has a reduced amount of PFAS in it. But what you're left with is this carbon or this filter from the re re reverse osmosis that are now laden with PFAS, mm -hmm. right? And so you've not eliminated, you've not destroyed it, you've just simply collected it. And now what do you do with it? Um, you know, in, in many traditional cases, what you would do would be to incinerate those things or even to landfill. The problem with this is one of the characteristics that we find with PFAS, beyond the fact that you would have to take the, the incineration up to, you know, almost steel smelting kind of temperatures, is that when it cools, you're still not destroying it and it tends to recombine. And so chemically, it just, it, it, incineration at this point in time is a really troublesome means of trying to eliminate that. With landfilling though, um, that may not be the best answer either. Um, simply because PFAS, as one of its characteristics, is highly mobile. Um, it spreads really well. It tends to be water-soluble. And so putting it back into a landfill may be problematic. And so there aren't any real good answers for that at the moment. I wish I could say, yep, we just ship it all to Chris's house and he'll take care of it. But no, uh, <laughs> thanks, Fred. I, I, I don't think Chris's wife would be real happy about that. Uh, the, the fact of the matter is that that's something that's still being studied, Renee, because we don't have good answers. And it almost circles back to something we talked about uh, earlier this week. Some of the unusual places you're seeing this show up. I remember um, an article from last uh, fall um, that I was reading uh, from Maine, um, where you know deer season was being affected in some parts of Maine, deer hunting season, because the um, PFAS in the area had bioaccumulated and it wasn't safe to eat the deer in Maine. And I was talking to a colleague actually last week, and uh, she commented that her nephew was hunting in that area, shot a deer, and the um, game warden wouldn't let him take the deer. They pretty much had to send the deer off to have it destroyed. 
he wasn't able to take that. It was kind of unusual. Chris, I know you were telling me about another situation. Yeah, I think it was if, if we look, Yeah, it was. It was. So wastewater treatment plants, the disposal product from that, the biosolid, has been, the water has been filtered and those biosolids have accumulated. They're then treated uh, for pathogens and made safe from that respect, but they still contain what is PFAS. And I know that there was a farmer that spread this biosolid, so uh, it, it would be a fertilizer for you know, the grass feed that he would be using with his cattle and spread it out over the entire uh, farm uh, to grow the grass so that the cows could eat the, uh, the the grass itself. And as a result, the cattle consumed contaminated material. The material grows into the plant. So you can see how that certainly through osmosis goes up, you know, into the plant right. and uh, comes out and then the cows eat it. And then all of a sudden they become contaminated with PFAS and unusable from a food source. So can you both share um, what some of the takeaways might be for companies? Because this is a complicated topic. What steps would you recommend they take? Let me jump in there first, Fred. What we are advising is that people take stock of their exposures. And that means that you'd have to conduct a review or a risk assessment and then evaluate those results. If you determine that an exposure exists, you need to create a risk management plan to monitor, to identify and reduce the potential for that. And again, engineer it out of your processes, as we'd mentioned earlier. So businesses across the country are soon gonna be faced with the challenge and new requirements to disclose the presence of the products and the materials that may potentially contain PFAS. And making the challenge greater, this reporting obligation extends back 10 years and so even though a few companies have records that disclose whether an ingredient or component was there uh, that they used and contained them, they still are going to have some difficulty moving that into sort of a comprehensive report. And so the EPA's set to finalize new regulations. And I hate to keep mentioning that this is a, uh, we do it because of a regulatory requirement. We do it because we're protecting the environment is really what I think is what we're trying to really highlight, uh, but they are going to be mandating it for manufacturing and they are going to require detailed reports. And if the hard numbers can't be ascertained, then businesses are going to have to come up with best estimates. And I think that, you know, it, it has to be credible, you know, because if you show that you were diligent in applying the science that uh, determines what products you have or what materials you, you use and, uh, and sell, uh, then certainly I think you'll stand a better chance of surviving that scrutiny, you know, public and or regulatory. So, Fred, how about you? The task is enormous. The EPA, as normally happens, had a comment period, and that closed in September. And they're looking at, with their roadmap, something just shy of 1,400 chemicals. Um, and the comments from the, the industry stakeholders kind of laid out just the enormity of this task. You know, 10 years, 1,400 chemical compounds. And it's not just the large companies of the world that are going to be subject to this. Interestingly, the EPA with this 
has eliminated the kind of normal exemptions they give to small companies. Um, they're looking at this holistically across all industries. And they've even kind of tweaked the definition of manufacturer. We have a lot of companies that import products into this country and then assemble or further process and then sell their end product from it. For the uh, roadmap the EPA has kind of laid out, even if you import into the U.S. a product that has or might have PFAS in it or on it, um, you're going to be subject to scrutiny as a manufacturer. Um, so that really just lays out part of the complexity that companies are going to have to deal with um, trying to track back all of their um, global supply chain for the last 10 years in every supplier to see what have we imported, what have we done, what have we um, accumulated here that, that needs to be reported. You know, but we really want to get ahead of this. And again, it goes back to managing that risk. We really want to kind of follow that path that Chris was talking about, really conduct that self-assessment of what, what are the PFAS exposures, whether it be a worker exposure, a consumer exposure, a uh, premises exposure that they may have had. You know, what, what materials have they used that contain PFAS? What manufacturing processes could this have come through on? Where have we tested our uh, foam fire extinguishing system and then, you know, spread PFAS by, by doing so. There's a lot of things that need to go into this and that companies really need to start thinking about and really starting with that assessment and breaking it down by, you know, some logical means. And if that's worker, consumer, premises, however they want to do it, as long as they're systematic with it and start moving forward with it, I think that that gives them the best chance for success. And how many different types of companies are we talking about that could potentially be vulnerable to this exposure? That's a tough question. Um, again, because uh, PFAS is really effective and we've been using it for so long, the use of it is so widespread. Um, last time I, I looked, there's something like 79 or 80 different industries um, that are currently involved with litigation. Uh, around PFAS, and we expect that to, to really grow. It's manufacturers, it's importers, it's distributors, it's even retailers um, that really could be in scope for both the EPA and for litigation. I really can't think of one where we wouldn't see that. Chris, do you? Just the wastewater treatment plants, I think, are, are significant. Uh, we can see it in some applications in construction. Uh, where either applied materials or waste materials that are disposed of in landfills, they are going to have to start really rethinking how they move materials and cut a braid or otherwise sand or what have you. You can imagine, uh, you know, a lot of paints contain it uh, because it makes it more durable. You know, the walls that you don't want to have to scrub because the paint is one that you can get the crayon off of it that also could contain PFAS. So before we end this podcast, I wondered if you um, 
could both share some helpful websites for anyone who wants to learn more? Well, I'll, I'll jump out there, Fred. Uh, the EPA certainly is uh, one of the one of the better sites that are out there. They've done a lot of work around this. The EPA.gov. The other one I like is through the National Institute of Health, uh, and it's a think tank called the Silent Spring Institute, where they have really done a great job of documenting all the things that uh, are possible. And they've even given some tools that one could use to test to see if you do have an exposure report uh, from a, a certified laboratory, you could plug in the numbers there, how many uh, nanograms per liter to determine you know, how broad is that compared to uh, the state regulations that are out there. We've, we've used this ourselves to make some of those determinations. How about you, Fred? Yeah, I, the certainly, you know, I, I use the NIH. Um, you know, one of the things that we want to be careful of any time that we're um, putting this kind of information out there is sending people to credible sources. Um, there are any number of non-credible sources out there. And so I really like looking at, um, you know, there's some information in the REACH, R-E-A-C-H program in the EU. Uh, as well as the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, as well as uh, the National Institutes of Health. Certainly, uh, OSHA, I think, even has some information up on their site. But, Chris, I know that Risk Engineering um, put together some um, uh, information, and is, is that available on our website? Yeah, we have um, a risk topic that we're going to be making available, uh, and we're working with our communications area to make that happen. It isn't there yet, but that's something that we're uh, we're pushing to get done. But risk engineers right now have access to uh, the risk topic forever chemicals that we can we can share readily. Terrific. And our website is zurichna.com/risk for our Zurich Resilient Solutions team. But know that we are going to put all of these websites on the podcast show notes. Fred and Chris, thank you so much for helping to clarify what is an extremely uh, complex topic and a risk we're going to be hearing a lot more about, I'm sure. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks. Future of Risk, presented by Zurich North America. If you like the show, we'd appreciate it if you left a comment or review wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Let us know what you think at media at zurichna.com and join us next week.